The next finger award is for Bill Mantlo. Bill went to work for Marvel Comics as a product. Bill Mantlo, absolutely. Bill went to work for Marvel Comics as a production assistant and colorist in 1974, but quickly found his, found his niche as a writer, initially of fill-ins. Within a few years, he would have written at least an issue or two of almost every major Marvel title and also taken on many regular assignments, including long and popular runs on Micronauts, Rom Space Knight, Kazar the Savage, The Incredible Hulk, Moon Knight, and his co-creation with artist Ed Hannigan, Cloak and Dagger. Another co-creation was Rocket Raccoon, soon to be part of a major motion picture. Mantlo used his income from comics to segue to law school, and in 1987 passed the bar and began working as a public defender. In 1992, while rollerblading, he was struck by a car and suffered what was described as irreversible brain damage. He presently resides in a nursing facility. His finger award will be shipped to his brother and caregiver, Michael, who will present the plaque to Bill. Here to accept that award is his friend and colleague, Marv Wolfman. In many ways, uh, Bill saved Marvel in the 1970s. Um, we were doing something called the dreaded deadline doom, if some of you remember, where because books came in very late, instead of an actual comic coming out, we reprinted an old comic under a brand new cover. My mandate when I was uh, put in the position of editor-in-chief was to get the books on time. To do so, I asked Bill, who was amazingly fast, but more importantly, amazingly good, to create the most incredible types of fill-in stories and brand new stories, which would combine different characters. Because every time we, I'm sorry, every month we would get together and figure out what were the latest books, and we'd team up all those characters whatever was going to be late so that no matter which book actually got uh, was late we could slot it in and it required the strangest crossovers and Bill managed to get them not only incredibly fast but they were all good they were amazingly good from there an assignment nobody else wanted he made he saved Marvel with brand new material that was exciting fun and adventurous and kept to the characters like nobody else could have done. From there, he took on a yet another set of assignments which were um, nobody else wanted, which was writing toy comics. And yet, he turned Rom and Micronauts into the most popular books that Marvel had at the time. Uh, he was a really good writer, really good writer. And he wrote a lot of books that a lot of people wouldn't want to have written because they didn't think they could do well, and he managed to do them beautifully. Um, but more importantly, he was also a great person. Uh, I remember one summer he uh, rented a uh, house, I believe it was in upstate New York or Vermont, and just to get away. 
So what was the first thing he did trying to be alone was he called the entire Marvel staff and had us come and spend the weekend with him and just treated us wonderfully. Bill was a great guy, a great writer. I wish to God he was picking this up for himself. We will get it to him. Thank you very much. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and that is Scott Gardner. Hello. How you doing? I, you know, at the moment, I'm chipper, and I'm awake, and I'm in a good mood, but, you know, you got me going here an hour earlier than we had planned. It's early in the morning, so if I turn into a grumpy prick in about 20 minutes, it's all your fault, because I didn't have my breakfast, so. If you turn you into. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's funny, my wife says the same, ah, uh, fuck the both of you, but, um. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, the morning is my time, uh, I, and it's always been. I've, I've always been, you know, like up at the crack of dawn. I can't help it. I can't sleep in. The only times, you know, when, when you have those uh, late teens, early 20 years, and you're out, you know, into 4 o'clock in the morning, those were the days <laughs> I could sleep in. But right. other, other than that, I've never been able to sleep in my whole life. So, you know, it, it's... From everything I understand, it is more the way of the old people, you know, the senior citizens. <laughs> they go to bed at 7 o'clock at night, and they're up at 4 in the morning. Right. Uh, so I, I, I guess that's that's what fate has in store for me. I, I try to force <laughs> myself to stay up later sometimes, but, you know, I, I and I am up later than 7. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that bad. But I tell you, around 10 o'clock at night, 10.30, I just start to drag, and I'm I'm pretty much ready to go to sleep. <laughs> so. yep um, i'm kind of headed there myself <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about yep so, 4 30 so. dinners at the gold corral are in our future my friend oh we could do 4 30 dinner no problem that's <laughs> <laughs> i could do that easily and, you know just just give me the, give me that that you know you know i was gonna say give me the uh whatever the special price what do they call i don't even know what they call that the early bird special price but right. it's not even so much that as it is i like to walk into a restaurant and sit at a table i don't like when you walk in and they say well it'll be about 40 minutes and you know here's here's a beeper we'll give you that you could just walk around and scratch your butt until we set it <laughs> off 
Yeah, that's that's yep. what annoys me about going to dinner later. So I don't mind going early. I, you know, I I, am, I push for reservations, and I don't want to, I don't want to sit around and wait. That's my way. <laughs> anyway, today we are continuing our uh, focus uh, series, and we were talking about who to cover this time. And the last two times we did it, we covered an artist. So I thought it might be good to do a writer this time, and we are covering the, uh, I was going to say late great, but he is still alive. Uh, unfortunately, right. he's not, you know, he's not what he was, sadly, uh, but the uh, the great Bill Mantlo, and you and I have spoken many, many times uh, singing the praises of Mantlo, and I guess the primary thing he's known for, and the primary thing we've talked about is licensed products because his because of his work on Micronauts yes. and ROM. And both of us have, have praised those series to, to no end. Uh, and, and I mean, it shows, a very, to me, it shows a very special skill to create background stories for these characters and to flesh them out, uh, just to be handed, like, basically an image and to put it in a way where it's compelling and it's, you know, there's more to it than that. But his history is... is you know, full of much, much more than that. So while we, we've talked about it, you know, we haven't gotten into the in-depth. Right. That's the thing I really like about these Focus On episodes that we're doing is learning more about, the you know, these people that, that make the magic for us, you know, that, that write the stories, that draw the stories, whatever the, the deal is. And, you know, when there is information available, you know, learning more about the people you know that their contribution to comics but just them as you know as human beings type of thing and um i just wanted to say it's funny you said you know you were saying that about uh you know not calling him the late great because he's not passed i, I don't know how many times writing the you know what i wrote up about him that i started to put that and i'm like no no he's still he's still around he's still around so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, and obviously that's going to be part of his biography, and it's a huge part of his biography, and it's 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 right. it's very very sad. It is. It really is. Um, well, we'll go ahead and we'll jump into this. I, I have kind of a, uh, like a basic outline, um, you know, of his life and of his career here, um, and then uh, leaving openings for each of us to uh, discuss the issue that we brought. Uh, we each brought, you know, one issue uh, of his work. Uh, to take a look at and examine, you know, along with, uh, you know, we'll just have kind of a general discussion of other things as, as we touch upon them. So, so here we go. Just, Bill Manuel, just, I was um, going to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say, and I think we both, because we've sung the praises of Ram and Micronauts so much, we decided neither of us was going to go with one of those. Right. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and I think that was a wise idea because those are, those are issues we're compelled to do. Uh, otherwise, anyway. So let you know. Why don't we do something that we might not otherwise do? And and while yours is a little bit different, mine is certainly one that we've also sung the praises of in its own way over the years too. So right. it's just I, I, I think I'm. Just, it's my long-winded way of saying I think we made some good choices. I tell you, that was the toughest part of this was only picking one. Because as I was looking over his body of work, and it's quite the body of work, and, and it's all over the place. I mean, he did have lengthy runs on several titles, but he also did a lot of work all over the place. You know, one-shots here, there, and everywhere. 
So it was really hard to just pick one book because I must have picked at least like six different books and then I would find something else and go, well, no, maybe I should do that. Well, no, maybe I should do that. And I, and I jumped all over the place, but that's why I thought, uh, well, you know, if we just kind of hit on things as we go through his timeline, you know, then hopefully we'll, we'll cover some of those things that I, I would have said about, you know, other specific books, you know, had I picked those, but, uh, hopefully it'll all make sense. <laughs> yeah. With so, any luck. As you say, you know, uh, he, he was a writer, um, I think, is, is he the first writer that we're spotlighting? I think so. As far as, yes, as far as, uh, you know, since we've started this, there's only our third spot. And actually, these, I, I always go to spotlight, but the, the term we came up with these was focus. This is, mm-hmm. this is only our third focus. We did, uh, uh, listen, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Alan Weiss, yes. and we did the first part of Ross Andrew, and now we're doing this one. So it's only our third one. We had oh okay. I, I guess in my mind we, I've done more of these. There's, well, we've, there's we've, certainly we've, a lot of creators that I want to get to. Over we've time, had so. episodes where uh, you know a creator passed away and we talked about them extensively uh, in right. that respect. But you know, as far as our focus series, you know, where where we're, you know, since since we decided to do this, this is only the third one that we've done so far. Okay, but many more to come if we have our way. Absolutely, and yeah, and some other writers that I definitely like to like to cover as well. But uh, so anyway, um, Bill Mantler was a writer, although he didn't start that way uh, primarily, but not exclusively for Marvel Comics. Now, as you say, Paul, he's best known uh, for his work on both the Micronauts and Rom Space Knight, where in addition to writing very nearly every single issue of both long-running series. He effectively created the entire universe of both properties and all the characters, all the situations, the histories, the backstories, everything came out of, of his mind and imagination. And uh, that to me is, is really incredible. Um, some of his uh, most notable other creations, uh, of course, Cloak and Dagger, um, Modred the Mystic. I didn't realize that one. Um, no, Maria Stark. I had no idea that he created her. Um, Swarm, the guy that's all made up of bees, the Spider-Man villain. Um, Husk of the X-Men. And, of course, probably his most uh, famous creation, Rocket Raccoon. Um, He was born November 9th, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. All right. (laughs) He attended Manhattan's High School of Art and Design and went to college at the Cooper Union School of Art, where he focused on painting and photography. Uh, A connection with a college friend in 1974 led him to a job as an assistant to Marvel Comics production manager John Verputin. I never know how to pronounce that name. Verputin or Putin? I believe it's Porton. Porton? Verporton. Verporton. But although um, with, with names like that, sometimes there's a real ethnic pronunciation that we right. that we skip. But the, I, I would suspect that the Americanized version is what we the way we just said it. <laughs> it's got it's the two O's that throw me on that. Um, it, it just yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he he actually started out as a colorist. His first credits were as a colorist 
on several comics such as Werewolf by Night, Avengers, Doctor Strange, Marvel Team-Up, and so on. Uh, all cover dated between uh, October 1974 and April 1975. Um, in December of 74, he actually wrote a fill-in script for a Sons of the Tiger story in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number 7, which led to a permanent writing position on that title. And while scripting Deadly Hands, he and artist George Perez created uh, The White Tiger. And that was comics' first superhero of Hispanic descent. And it was also while working on Deadly Hands, uh, the backups, where Mantlo created uh, the Jack of Hearts character. So around this time, uh, Marvel's then-editor-in-chief Marv Wolfman instituted a policy to avoid the many missed deadlines plaguing the company, and the policy was to have fill-in stories at the ready should a title uh, be in danger of missing its deadline, and Matlo quickly became the fill-in king, creating stories under very tight deadlines, many of which did find their way into print. And Wolfman uh, explained about Mantlo, he says, you know, that he was both uh, good and fast and at that point didn't have a lot of regular assignments. So he was, you know, kind of throwing him a bone and getting him started. And with that, I think that brings us nicely to our first book, which was just Mantlo's second fill-in story after scoring his uh, his regular stint working on Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, and uh, and it's all you, Paul. Uh, I feel like I should. Do <laughs> I feel like uh, Bugs Bunny when he's take it, Sam? <laughs> and I should start tap dancing. <laughs> So, so I I chose uh, will uh, excuse me the monster Frankenstein. Can I just stand here and hold up a sign with a screw and a ball on it. <laughs> uh, I, I, for my book, I chose uh, the Frankenstein monster number eighteen. Uh, the title of the episode is "Lady in the House" and it is written by Bill Mantlo, penciled by the great Val Mayrick. And see, just to take a thought on that is Val Mayrick. Because we interviewed him and we focused on him and he's not really, I think he's not a household name to a lot of people, although he should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like we did a spotlight yes. episode or focus on episode on him, but we haven't. And maybe we will at some point. Uh, <laughs> but that's, he's, he's somebody who, you know, we, he's come up recently on our Facebook page with where we've uh, posted a few commissions by him and he's so good. So, uh, written by Mantlo. Penciled by Val Mayrick, inked by Mayrick, except for several pages that are credited to Dan Atkins, colored by Phil Raish, lettered by Karen Mantlo, Bill's wife, and edited by Len Wein. The cover is by Bernie, Reitz, Bernie Wrightson, the late great Bernie Wrightson, and Val Mayrick and Gaspar Saladino. I don't know what the uh, the split up of the work is. I, I would I would suspect that it's mostly pencils by Wrightson, but I don't even know that for a fact. Uh, it shows uh, the Frankenstein monster uh, battling a bunch of uh, it looks like mutated. I was going to say children because the the cover says children of the damned, but the the one most of them look like children except for the one who's closest to the foreground who looks like kind of an old hag. So uh, he's battling all these creature these mutated creatures who are like hanging on his limbs and uh, they don't you know none of them appear to be. 
enough to really take him down, but it appears that there's a lot of them. While there's a lady in a in either a bikini or a tank top in the background who is the damsel in distress who does not actually appear in the story. Uh, the monster is saying, leave me alone or I will kill you all. Uh, and as, did I mention it's Bernie Wrightson? Because it's really sharp. And it's Val Merrick because it's really sharp. The story that, a, that is a good catch. I totally didn't catch it, and I really should have because my very first note was that this cover and the art inside, especially the attack of the dwarf sequence inside, totally reminds me of Swamp Thing's first encounter with the Unmen in Swamp Thing number 10. I just sent you a cover image, Paul. And... Uh, that was during the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson run on Swamp Thing. They created the character. And so that makes sense. This cover reminds me of the cover of number 10. Well, that's, of course, a Bernie Wrightson cover. So it, it kind of all ties. I just totally didn't catch that this was uh, Mayerick and, and Wrightson together. But now that, that all kind of gels. So that's, that's really cool. Now, in the uh, middle of the left side of the cover, there's initials. It's VM at the top and then BW underneath that. Yep. So I'm and wondering <laughs> if that I wonder if that's a you know if if the sequence the fact that Val Mayrick's name is on top means that he was the either penciler or primary penciler because you you would think it would make sense you'd give the person who initiated the drawing the primary credit. That would be my guess, but I yeah yeah I, I, I yeah I do not know how how the uh, you know how how it was. Uh, distributed but it's it's uh, let's just say it's a really sharp cover and would certainly have me buying this issue uh if if i had seen it on the stand when i was uh well this was actually september of 1975 so i was buying comics then i do own this issue but i do not believe i purchased it new so i must not have seen this on the stands because i would have bought it but i also have to say i didn't have the affinity for the horror titles, the Marvel horror titles back then that I do now. Right. So the story opens up in a kind of a, a, a secluded setting, you know, it looks very, very peaceful. Uh, and the monster who in this story, as in the uh, actual novel, is articulate. Uh, and he is with his now friend, the Berserker, who apparently is, is a robot, who was, I believe, created to battle him, and eventually, you know, realized that they that they did they had more in common than uh, than they than they uh, thought, and they stopped battling and actually became friends. And the monster is is leading him uh, to a, a secluded place so that they could be safe. Uh, the uh, berserker just kind of. Uh, doesn't really talk much in the way of emotion. He just kind of says, you know, observation, safety is a relative term. You know, that that's his first words in it. Uh, I should note just on, on the splash page, it mentions Dan Atkins inked pages 15, 18, and 26. Why those three, I don't know. Uh, the two the two are walking and uh, heading for a meadow where they, where they believe they could be safe, and they continue on. Uh, we cut from there to, uh, I guess it's, I don't know if it's the Frank, no, I'm not sure exactly where they are, uh, but there's uh, Veronica Frankenstein, the only known living descendant of Victor von Frankenstein, uh, and uh, two two men. I, I didn't know exactly, 
excuse me, where this story uh, came from. There's one is laying un- unconscious on the floor. His name is Prawn, which I just kind of like because that's a big shrimp. Uh, and then there's right. an- another man helping her, uh, and they observe a-, a helicopter approaching, which is apparently coming after them. And uh, the the other guy, the the guy who's awake, grabs a gun and heads out. And as the helicopter starts to uh, approach, uh, they realize that he's coming after them or that he's, you know, that he's not going to allow them to attack him. They start to lift off. He takes the gun and he shoots it, hits the gas tank, and the the helicopter uh, explodes. And uh, just, you know, they make it clear here because I'm not sure exactly the backstory of this you know what's going on here. I have to reread this series really badly, uh, but it looks like they are being hassled by some sort of a you know a, a uh, dark agency or whatever, uh, and that's what the helicopter was. So I believe the gentleman who just made the helicopter explode and the people within it die is actually a uh, good guy in this story. But we move back to the uh, the monster and the berserker going through the. Uh, this, what, what now appears to be more of like a swampy area, and they they discuss the fact that the berserkers' arm had been torn off uh, in whatever prior battle they had, and it's useless at this point. Uh, the berserker throws it on the ground, but the monster goes over and picks it up, and uh, says, you know, he'll carry it for his friend. Uh, but and 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 the berserker is starting to show some sort of a you know an emotion that he's feeling gratitude. Uh, and in the last panel, we see that they're being watched by this uh, you know, small mutated person, similar to the ones we saw on the cover of the book. They come along, they come, come across some water, the monster starts to drink, the, uh, the berserker notes that the, that there's, you know, the, the, the water is, is brackish and not healthy. Uh, but the, but the monster is able to drink it without a problem. He, he asks the, uh, berserker to join him, but the berserker is unable to drink and, uh, appears to be sad based on that and have regret. Uh, as, as they continue to talk, they are then put upon by a, a large group of these mutated small children who say, take them, mother commands it. And, uh, they, they they actually bring the, the the monster down to the ground in 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 the water, and the berserker is uh, battling them as well. And he's he's using his uh, severed arm as a club, uh, but over time, the uh, he's just overwhelmed by the number of people who are attacking him, uh, and he's brought to the ground. And one takes a, a mallet or a club and hits him right at the neck, which severs his head from his body. Uh, apparently uh killing the character uh, i don't know if the series had continued if if they would have resurrected him since he was a robot but at this point he is dead and i don't believe he ever appeared again the monster yeah, i looked him up on the on the marvel wiki um just out of curiosity because because of his resemblance to robot man i misremember i thought he was because it I think the first page, the opening splash, I think describes him as a man robot. So I was thinking he was like Robot Man, a a human brain in a metal casing, essentially. But no, he's he's truly just a robot. And sadly, this this is his demise. He never appeared again. Apparently, after this. And and as portrayed in this book, I think there was potential. Now that 
that could be based purely on Bill Mantlo's writing style that he he gave the character some potential, or it could be that he was just a good character that they've uh, let slip away from them. I couldn't tell you for certain. Uh, right. But I, but I, you know, my very very limited uh, exposure to this character, you know, about seven or eight pages of it, I found it to be fascinating, and I would have liked to have read more. Yeah, me too. So the the apparent death of the berserker, you know, sends the monster into a rage, and uh, he, he starts just taking out the, the 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 small creatures, but he is also eventually overwhelmed by the uh, numbers, and they are <coughs> excuse me, they are able to beat him into unconsciousness, uh, but they uh, they also bring him to the mother. Uh, because she's asked, she she wants him unharmed, uh, and they they carry him aloft, you know, many of them with him on their shoulders, and say, "Mother will be pleased." They come to a uh, to a, a big hill that they have to go down to get to the house they're going to, uh, and realize they're not able to carry him down. Uh, and they say, they say, but he's strong, so they throw him down and roll his body. You know, you could see it, it would. Something that would probably kill a, a normal person, uh, as his body flips over, you would think it would snap the neck of a normal person, uh, and then they just kind of slide down on their butts to catch up to him, and they bring him uh, aloft again, and they bring him to a castle, where they're greeted by uh, kind of a gnome-looking, I don't know if it, even know if it's a woman or a man, uh, you know, but but a a, a gatekeeper who who lets them in actually. No, it's it's a man because it's Igor, uh, and he lets them in, and the monster slowly uh, regains consciousness, and he's in a uh, he, he's he's in a an area where there's all openings looking down on him, uh, kind of almost like an arena, and they're all looking down on him and and talking about him, uh, and you know the the mother told him that he he was the first. And he wakes up and he's chained, but he's trying to get free. He breaks the chains, and he's fighting a lot of these creatures again. Uh, and then he's he's confronted by Igor, who he uh, he he beats down and and uh, is ready to to just slam and kill uh, when he's called upon to stop. And the person who called is the one who they're saying is mother. And uh, she tells him he's a very bad monster uh, who killed the man who made him. And uh, she mentions that that man is her great-grandfather. She is the Baroness Victoria von Frankenstein and uh, the direct descendant of his creator. It says, next issue, Baroness von Frankenstein. But, sadly, this was canceled and this was the last issue. Uh, I believe, and it's, again, I'm going to have to revisit. I believe this is actually picked up in Iron Man 101 and 102. Uh, I remember that the, the monster is in those issues, and I seem to remember all these little mutated creatures in there as well. And that is, I believe, Bill Mantlo picking up the threads of the story that he had already written uh, and, and taking, you know, taking it to its conclusion since he wasn't able to hear. Right. So, yeah, I need to revisit that. I have I have that, and I have read it in the past, but I, I have only vague memories of it, but I, I believe you're right that that is Mantlo on that. Now, I made a, a startling discovery 
um, while doing the research for this, I, I happened to stumble across this really great site, and I, I couldn't even tell you the name of it at the moment here. Let me see if I can find it real quick if I save it. Yeah, it's called, it's Marv, uh, I'll just spell it for you. It's M-A-R-V-U-N-A-P-P.com, and it's it's just a fan site. It's, you know, this private person putting together incredibly, and I mean just fantastically detailed biographies and um, bibliographies of select Marvel character uh, appearances. And I mean, the level of, of detail and just the level of geekdom that this guy has put into this is, I mean, I'm looking here, for example, at Dracula's page, and this could be a book there's so much detail on all of his appearances and his backstory, and I was just blown away by this site. I just happened to stumble across it. So I started looking up characters just for fun, and one of the first ones I looked up was Frankenstein's monster to see are there appearances of the character, of the creature that I don't have in my collection because I've tried to be a completist with that character. And while doing that research, I stumbled across, um, I don't speak uh, German, so I'm not sure, but I believe it's pronounced Das Monster von Frankenstein. This is issue 26 of Marvel's German version of this title. Well, issue 26 is a continuation of oh, wow. this series. And I was shocked because I'd never heard that there was another issue. Um, so I dug it up. I, I actually found a scan of it online and dug it up. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like anybody connected with what we just looked at um, was part of the next issue. And frankly, I can't read it because it's in German. But frankly, just judging you know a book by its cover and by the you know the pictures inside you know the the pages and panels it doesn't look very good at all it, it actually looks really terrible i mean the art's terrible but the story looks kind of dopey too again just judging by the artwork um but at least there was one more issue i was really shocked by that um it is not considered marvel canon which is probably why it's kind of forgotten and it wasn't ever included in like the essentials or anything like that but I just thought it was cool. You know, it's just a historical oddity. I had no idea it existed. And uh, so it's just kind of neat. It does carry forward the whole thing with the Baroness and the dwarves. But uh, I looked through it to, to double check. And uh, what's his name? The Berserker does not appear in it. So, yeah, for what that's worth. But essentially, from what I can tell, just, you know, again, thumbing through it, um, the Baroness comes down the stairs, she greets the monster, he greets her, um, they have dinner together, it, it's, it almost reminds me of the scene of, uh, of, you know, the door sliding open and Vader's waiting for, you know, Han and party in, in the Empire Strikes, it's kind of like that, you know, they're sitting at a table at, you know, at opposite ends of the table, just like in that scene, um, it looks like there's a long conversation, the, the monster's put in a dungeon, and then the next day he's strapped to a table and she's shocking him uh when it when the issue ends and i i don't know if this is saying 
to be continued or what it's saying at the end. Maybe it's giving the, the title of the next story. I, I really don't know, but that that's what I'm able to glean from it anyway. So, you know, the story was going forward, um, but apparently this was uh, the last issue of new content and then either the title ended or it went into reprints. I'm not sure, but uh, but I just thought it was kind of interesting that there is one more Frankenstein story that I never knew about. That that is actually very interesting, and uh, <laughs> it, it's I guess you know it ended on kind of a high note. Uh, yes, it, it, you know with with even if this story wasn't necessarily you know what you were going for, but just you know consider it's it's. The last issue was written by a great writer and drawn by a great artist. So, you know, then then you shift over to, to what sound, almost sounds like fan fiction uh, for the follow-up. So you could understand yeah. why, you know, that wouldn't necessarily <laughs> enthrall you. But I would love to see, you know, where, where it went from there, to be honest with you, and, and you know, where the story went. Uh, I, I'm going to have to revisit the Iron Man issues uh, because, like I said, I, I've, I've owned them since they came out, and I read them at the time, but I definitely read them in a vacuum uh, without really knowing where the story came from. So I think now, you know, revisiting it now, might it might explain where this story went to uh, in actual continuity, as opposed to, you know, the, the thing that you uh, came up with, which I'd be interested in seeing. But you know, since you said the artwork is pretty bad, I, I'm not so uh, enamored. I just punched up Marvel uh, Iron Man 101 on, uh, you know, on the Marvel Wiki, and in the notes it said, at this point, the Frankenstein monster last appeared in Marvel Team Up number 37. I don't remember that story having yes. any reference to this yeah because that's got all right i think that starts as a man wolf it either starts as a man wolf team up and goes into a frankenstein monster team up or the other way around but yes i just i do remember those issues yes, yes. i didn't gonna, realize that was next i'm gonna take a look at those again but i don't remember them uh you know i don't i don't remember them really resolving this and that uh those marvel team-up issues were written by jerry conway not bill mantlo so i don't know right. if he if he felt the same uh urge to complete the story but i, I want to take a look at those again and then i want to take a look at the iron man issues and see see where this story goes uh the other thing you know and i hate to, to go too much on the character because i want to talk more mantlo right now but before i get more into mantlo uh i'm assuming I, i'm figuring that the the Marvel Frankenstein monster character probably appeared in some of the black and white magazines in stories that I'm not familiar with. Uh, I have almost a complete run of the, uh, you know, the the monster Frankenstein or the Frankenstein monster because it had both names over the course of its run. Uh, right. I'm missing I'm missing three issues right now. I, have, I need issue one, twelve, and sixteen uh, to complete that series. Uh, but I'm I'm assuming. And, and I have the Marvel team of issues, and I have the Iron Man issues. Uh, but I'm assuming that there are, like I said, some black and white magazine stories that I would like to read if I get the chance. Uh, you might have more familiar, familiarity with that than me, because you seem to have focused a little bit on the magazines more than I have. I, I recently completed, um, I, I have every issue of Monsters Unleashed, and I primarily got those 
for the Frankenstein monster uh, appearances in that title. He's not in every issue, um, but I wanted to be a completist. And so it, it was kind of a combined project between wanting to have all the Frankenstein monster appearances, but then there's also creators that I'm trying to collect their works, um, and those creators were spread out essentially over all of the issues of that series. So I basically, I just had to have every issue of the series, whether the monster was in them or not, because of these other creators that worked like Val Merrick, for example, he, uh, he did a lot of work on the black and white magazine. Um, I have not yet made time to sit down and read all of them, but the ones I have read, I'm, I'm just fascinated by them. I, I, I just, I love them. Um, the art is beautiful. The stories are generally a little more, um, adults, you know, as far as, you know, the, the, you know, the, the writing style and the level of violence and, you know, just the, the creep factor that, you know, cause they were emulating the other horror mags that were out at the time, like, you know, like creepy and eerie and, you know, Marvel was trying to compete with that market. Um, you know, so they were trying to, they, they were aiming a little older and a little more, um, you know, quote unquote sophisticated, uh, with that stuff. But, um, that is <clears throat> definitely on my list to look at all that stuff because as I'm looking here at this guy's write-up for uh, the character of the Frankenstein monster, he, in, in addition to writing up these lists of appearances and everything, he's he's doing like a timeline. So he's trying to put all these appearances in a chronological timeline order, and he has all of uh, the monster's appearances in Monsters Unleashed uh, right in the middle of his run uh, you know, on this title, which I don't think in publishing order is correct. So he's, he's placing those adventures chronologically into this series. So I kind of want to read it that way and see how it reads, because I, I do believe that the stories kind of did flow back and forth a little bit, almost like a, like a Batman detective comics type of thing, if you know what I mean. Right. So I, I want to sit down and read it that way because I don't believe I ever have. Um, and I, I remember us, you know, a couple of years back where we covered an issue uh, of the black and white storyline where, uh, <coughs> if my memory serves me, uh, it was kind of, uh, handed from one writer to another, and each writer kind of tried to box the the next writer into a corner and and <laughs> make them have to write their way out of it. And there was something where the, I, I don't know if you were on this episode or not. I'm thinking you were. I'm thinking you probably mm -hmm. brought the issue. Uh, but there was something where like they like replaced the monster's brain with the brain of a mouse or something. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I did bring that one. Yeah, that that I believe was from the magazines, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's my memory also. But yeah. I, I'd love to to get a hold of all of those and read them, but that might be a little bit of an undertaking. Well, this this was an interesting book to look at because this to me joins that long list of just unfortunate, you know, call it you know whatever sci-fi or whatever uh, series where you know it, it seems like. Okay, it was it was it had a long turbulent run, or maybe even a short turbulent run, but now it was kind of finding its feet, and then they canceled it, you know. And and you know the the history of comics, of science fiction TV shows, and and things you know are replete with this story of 
It was a struggle, but now we're on the path. Oh, shit, we're canceled, you know? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what this issue felt like because I really felt like this was the upswing. I think the reason I didn't, because I had the same problem you did coming into this. I didn't remember anything that was going on. I didn't remember. I remembered the Berserker in broad strokes, but I didn't remember the other supporting characters. I didn't remember the situation. I didn't remember how they got there. And I think the reason for that is because, as you say, it was just other than the artist uh, Val Mayerick toward the end, it was just a constant rotating team of creators. And the vision, there was no story. It was just a sequence of, you know, false starts, if you will. Right. But here's Matlo, and by the feel of the issue and what it says in the letters page of the issue. They're going to be the new team. They have a, a, a new vision, and they're going forward, and now we can look forward to some really good adventures. And that's the other reason I, I started seeking out, like, okay, this is the last issue, but it feels like it was canceled unexpectedly. So where did the material that they that they worked on, if they did have any other completed material, where did that end up? And that's what led me to you know that German issue. But unfortunately, that issue doesn't have any of these guys work in it. So I, I, I still wonder, is there out there somewhere another Mantlo and possibly even uh, Mayerick Frankenstein project? Or did that become, you know, what you were talking about, you know, the Iron Man story, because flipping through that real quick, I, I was just doing, um, I pulled it up here and was looking at the, the digital copy of it. It's, I mean, yes, it's Mantlo writing it, and yes, it's the monster, and it's the dwarves, and uh, and Victoria, but it doesn't, it just doesn't look or feel like, you know, like it's necessary, like it's using any of this, like you know what I mean, like like there was a story written, and now we can't publish it, so let's just turn it into an Iron Man story. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like it's trying to wrap up loose ends from the end of this series, but it doesn't feel like a story that he just mutated into an Iron Man story, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, which is what I would actually prefer, having read this one, that the, that it was mutated <laughs> from an Iron Man story. And then I had an epiphany as we were uh, talking about this, because I totally forgot that I had purchased on eBay a, uh, a, a an essential a copy of the, the Monster Frankenstein Essential uh and, and it's actually bound. It's got the hardcover on it, which is oh, kind of cool. cool. And I had gotten it at a decent price. And it includes the first 18, you know, the 18 issues of this series. But it also includes stories from Monsters Unleashed 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And the Legion of Monsters number 1. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just. So I don't know. I don't know how complete that is. If that's you know, other than the Marvel team up and Iron Man issues, if that pretty much brings me the entire run. Yeah, other than his appearances in other titles, you know, like like Iron Man, for example, or Marvel Team Up, I I think that's it. Well, um, the only other one I would throw in there because it doesn't sound like it's in there is uh, Giant Size Werewolf number two because he's oh, yeah. in that one as well. Um, but yeah, just looking at a quick list here, that sounds complete. And like I say, he's in almost every issue of uh, Monsters Unleashed, just not quite every one. Because I, I, you know, I, I don't think you said number one. I don't think no. he's in the first issue. Yeah. But since I have this now, I don't have to go out and seek those magazines, which 
They're still not, not that I wouldn't. Not that I wouldn't. Know. I was going to say not that I wouldn't buy them if I saw them in the store at a decent price. Uh, but that, um, that but, I, but I don't. I don't have to search them for completeness. Right. I, I wanted to get them, but <clears throat> you know me. I'm a notoriously cheap bastard when it comes to my back issues. So I set myself because I'm trying to complete that and several other Marvel magazines as well. Because I, suddenly I, I developed an interest in the Marvel magazines, and I want I want to try to you know be complete. So I've been getting that. I've been getting like Rampaging Hulk um, and some other ones. And I set myself, you know, a, a dollar limit on all of them. And when it came to these Monsters Unleashed, my, my limit was 10 bucks. And I was like, can I really do it? Can I really complete this collection for less than $10 an issue? Because there's one issue. I couldn't quote it to you. What did I want to say it's issue nine, I think. Um, that has the Wendigo, and that one is very, very, very expensive. Um, and I, I did it. I managed to get it. So it can be done. I mean, you can get the. You just got to be really patient. You got to search a lot of places and, and that sort of thing. But it can be done because um, I've been getting those, and I've been getting um, there's some uh, some like Morbius stories. Um, I can't remember the what titles they were, but like that Legion of Monsters. That's another one that's very pricey. Um, but I managed to score that one for under ten bucks too. So, like I said, it just it, it can be done. You just got to be patient. But they're definitely worth it because yes, the Frankenstein stuff has been reprinted, but there's a lot of I mean those were anthology books, so there's lots of other stories you know in each magazine and everything. And I don't think everything in them has been reprinted, um, which you know that was the other reason. I, I, and I just I like owning the originals. I, I mean I love the the essentials format and all that. But, you know, to me, it's just, there's something about, you know, holding on to that original. I just, I, I like owning the original products. I was just looking, uh, on eBay to see, since I don't have, uh, issue number one of the series, you know, what it goes for. Uh, and it goes for quite a bit. And then I saw one where it's for $8 and I thought, Ooh, I can there buy it. It's got a buy it now price. And it's Monsters of Frankenstein number one, Marvel Superheroes first issue. And then I saw covers near mint 1984. What it is is it's the collector's card. Oh, yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah, I, I'm seeing that a lot these days where, uh, yeah, you got to read those descriptions. I mean, really and, and, it's, and it's that, you know what, this is a buyer beware thing because it's it's there. It, it, it's there to be seen. I'm not saying that the, the uh, seller was trying to be uh, a wise guy. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have any reason to believe he was, but I could see where you could easily purchase it, expecting to get the comic in the mail, and then get a, get a, a a collector's card, and and be really really upset. Right. And and you know what? To be fair, as somebody who sells things on eBay, if you bought that and you were upset, shame on you. <laughs> because because it is it is there. He he's got in the pictures. He's got the front and the back of the card. And it says, uh, now I lost it, but it says, uh, you know, first issue covers. So I think, you know, you just have to read the description to know what, what it really is. Right. So, again, I'm not going to blast the, the seller, but <laughs> but, I, but I almost made, made a fatal mistake there. I see a copy of it for $18, but it looks like it's in pretty beat-up shape. WTS, mm. to be exact. <laughs> So I think I uh, I'm going to steer that. us back to Bill Mantlo. Just oh, yes, we please. still have a lot of material to, to get through here. Yes. So do, do we have any other thoughts on this particular well, issue? What, what I 
you know, trying to read through it, I tried to pay a little bit more attention to the writing. You know, I, I, I mean, not, I'm, I am more of a writing first guy where you're more of an art first guy. So it's not that I have to go out of my way to pay attention to it, but knowing that we're reviewing it more for the writing than the art, although the art is gorgeous. Uh, when, you know, I noticed, like, you know, he did have some use of some, like, flowery prose and all of that, uh, which I think is something that, you know, is a, descends down from Stan Lee in its own way. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, it, 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 he really did, I thought, set a tone in the uh, narration boxes for what was going on. I thought, uh, without being, like, just, over, you know, being like, you know, Roy Thomas uh, uh you know, where it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and, and I also thought, you know, again, I don't know what was in the previous issue. I'll have to reread that. But the character of the Berserker is what particularly stood out to me was he made this character compelling and it really was, you know, just a robot, you know, speaking robot ease as it went off. And I, and that, that impressed me. Uh, the story, you know, was fairly simple as it went along, but it also, you know, just kind of like kept pulling you in with it. Uh, the subplot, which, you know, it was not his because he didn't write the issue before this, but the subplot with the, uh, you know, what's his name, Prawn and, and blowing up the shit, the, the helicopter and all that, that was fascinating and I wanted to know more of what was going on with it. So overall, I would say a very, very well-written issue. I, I totally agree with you. I, I got the distinct impression here and, I, you know, all of this is just my impression. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not informed on this. I have no idea where this was going. But here, here's what I felt from it: was I definitely feel like there may be more. You know, there was more intended with the Berserker. I don't think that this was intended to be the end of him, because I liked the dynamic between those two characters. I, I liked that there was a budding friendship between the monster. And the Berserker, I, I feel like that's, you know, knowing that Matt Lowe was a really smart guy and everything, I, I just can't believe that, you know, that he would squander that opportunity to explore that. And that, you know, that's kind of the problem with a character like this is, you know, when he's just a solitary, shambling, rambling monster, who does he play off of? You know, it, it, does it become just you know, an episodic thing or, or do you throw other characters in there? And it looks like he's simultaneously developing the berserker as a companion while kind of shuffling these other characters off because, you know, there's only three pages devoted to them. And it almost feels to me at, at the end of their chapter where they're walking away and the guy's throwing the gun over his shoulder and everything and, and they're kind of walking out like they're walking out of the story. That was my impression was like we're kind of done with them and Mantlo's done with them too. He's wrapping them up and then we may not see them again after this because he's going to focus on other aspects. That, that was just my impression of it. Um, after the Berserker is taken out, um, I noticed that there was a shift and the monster, while he's still articulate, he kind of becomes Hulk-like. Um, you know, so I was interested. You know, where was this going? What what was Matlow's take going to be beyond this? Was was the monster now going to be more monster, more Hulk-like monster? You know, because he's he's angry over the death of his friend and 
that sort of thing. So I, it's it's such a shame that this is all we got because there's a lot of really good setup. There's a lot of really good potential here. And again, you know, reading the the little write up in the in the letters page, it sounds like they're excited too. You know, the creative team. So just the fact that this was it. You know, it's it, it's really hard to tell, but it, it certainly felt like, you know, there there was some real potential here, and that that's a shame. That's really a shame. Yeah, and I think this goes to what we talked about as far as like Mantlo's strength, and and I think his strength is in creating backstories for his characters mm-hmm. uh, that aren't necessarily making it to the page, but he knows who his characters are. He's probably got a little bit of a Bible that he writes on each one of them so that when he's writing them, he's going to play off their experiences and their history. Uh, and it's going to, you know, it's going to make it a richer story. And sometimes he's going to give you some of that backstory. And, you know, I, we've talked so many times about these licensed products or licensed characters that he's done. Uh, and I, th- I think, you know, that, that, that's what has served him to make them into three dimensional characters instead of just, you know, ciphers that are uh you know okay here's a toy and it's it's destroying things uh you know i think that that goes a long long way uh so you know and right. I, I look i look at his his bibliography and uh you know he's got a lot of licensed things in here uh he's got issues from battlestar galactica he's got uh we're just keeping going on this a little bit why well, uh yeah, I've got a John Carter, Warlord of Mars, Man from Atlantis. Uh, he did two issues of Marvel Classic Comics. Um, he did uh, what else have we got here? Quest Probe, uh, Rom, uh, Savage Sword of Conan. You know, these these are characters that not that didn't necessarily Team America, uh, the Human Fly. These are characters that, you know, you just handed them. It's not like a character like, say, Rocket Raccoon, where he creates it and he can kind of give it his own personality and whatever. It's, you know, here's, here's an image of a character or here's a, uh, you know, a, a very, very vague uh, background of it. Or here's the history that we're giving you that you have to work with. And he's working within those confines and writing interesting stories. Uh, for right. that matter, the Frankenstein monster is the same, you know, same thing. This is, you know, this isn't a character he created and it's not one that just has a comic book history. It's got a, a, a huge history between, you know, books and film and everything. And he's right. taking it and, and in his own way, I wouldn't go far, as far as to say making it his own, but he's giving it a voice that, you know, that, that resonates. And I, I think that's, that's probably, you know, one of his biggest strengths is that he most, gave these, yeah, he, he made definitely. these characters relatable. Rom Space Knight, you handed that image and told to ro- go ahead and write something with it. And he made it, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to the irony of this, he made it a very human character. So, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's where his real strength is. Uh, and I, I have a little bit more about his personal history that I want to touch on, but I think we'll do that after you do your book. Why don't we rate this one for now? Okay. Unless you have anything more to add on this one. Nope. <laughs> okay. So on this, 
as I said, I think the cover, I was, I was pretty much sold on the cover to begin with. And then just seeing the names Val Mayrick and Bernie Wrightson are automatically going to just make me, uh, you know, lean in a way it would influence me. Luckily, I didn't know who wrote it, who drew it when I first saw it. So I gave kind of a, a more objective view. My objective view was that it's an A. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but if I had already known, then I could say, well, you know, maybe that was subjective just on knowing who drew it. Uh, so, I'm glad I, I, I I'm glad I, I kind of rated it that way in my mind with before actually seeing it or seeing who did it rather. The interior art, uh, you know, I really think it's just terrific Valmeric art, uh, and I'm just curious because I didn't really look for the distinction on the pa- on the pages he did that he didn't ink. Uh, and you know what? It's kind of seamless. I don't really see a difference with with what Atkins inked. Or nothing, you know, not a significant difference at least. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say the arts and A as well. Uh, and the story, I got to tell you from, from, you know, my initial perspective on this, if you just, you know, you gave me the elevator pitch on it, I'm probably not thinking incredibly highly on it. But then when I read it, it was very, very compelling. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say A's all around on this. This was a really, really good book. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna mirror you. I think the cover is an A. Uh, I think the art inside is an A plus. I, I absolutely I love this. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, some of the panels uh, you could isolate and and they could be in a, you know they could be in an art gallery. Uh, I, I'm especially love page ten. The the dwarf watching. Um, the monster and the berserker as they're walking away you've got the the mushrooms growing on the side of that tree and it's just the detail is just amazing um it's just beautiful it's a gorgeous gorgeous book um and then the story yeah i think the story is a is definitely an a because it you know it feels like a new direction it's exciting and it's setting up some stuff that sadly didn't really get a payoff but it feels like what he was brought in to do, which was, hey, get get this title going, you know, reinvigorate this. And he's definitely done that because I want the next issue, which we're never going to get. <laughs> so, yeah. The only I, thing I, I would add to all it, the only thing I would add to it is having, uh, you know, the epiphany I did in pulling my essential off the shelf while we were talking. Uh, I like colored books. I think it's it's it, it adds something to it. It makes it easier on the eyes sometimes. Uh, but but looking at it in black and white, it's even better. It's just you know it, it's so much more moody and and you see better what you know what Mayrick did with this and it's just it's beautiful. I gotta get me a copy of that. I definitely gotta get me a copy of that. Well, I'm going to move us along because we still have a lot to cover uh, and not a lot of time to cover it. <laughs> so let's see, where are we, are we here? Um, so while continuing to work on Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Mantlo accomplished a staggering number of fill-ins. And you mentioned uh, quite a number of titles. Um, but, I mean, it was all over the Marvel spectrum from you know Astonishing Tales to X-Men, Iron Man to Power Man, Defenders, uh, Supervillain Team-Up. And just a ton more. So by the mid to late 1970s, he had written issues of very nearly every Marvel title that was out there. So 
I, you know, from here, I kind of want to go in uh, in a linear fashion and just touch on titles, and we'll talk about different titles that uh, you know that he did work on because he did, um, you know, while he did a lot of fill-in stuff, he also started to do runs of titles as well. So in '76, uh, he took over the Champions, and I failed to note what issue that was, but he he did. Uh, the bulk of like the second half of the series. Um, and while writing the champions, he collaborated with artist Bob Hall, uh, who said about him, he said, Bill was a peach. He said, <laughs> very helpful to me when I got my start uh, in comics. Uh, I think we were both as enthusiastic as we could get about this particular comic, but more because we were working at Marvel than because of the book itself. Um, I have all of those. I don't know that I've read. Are, are you familiar with Champions? I was I was picking up the Champions when it first came out, and I was kind of enamored with that series. I, I think uh, it was one of those things, you know, when you're a kid, where you can you kind of put together your own lineup for your own team, and you pick out like obscure comic characters who weren't part of the Avengers or whatever, and say, "Oh, I want this one and this one and this one," and that's what the Champions felt like to me. That like it was just such a an eclectic group of uh, characters between you know the, the the Angel and Iceman, and then Hercules and Black Widow and the Ghost Rider. Uh, that I, I really latched onto that right from the start, and I was very disappointed when that series got canceled and. As as is uh, well, you know, learning Bill Mantlo's want is, uh, you know, when he has a series like that that he gets cut off on, he does uh, like to go back and finish what he started. So he did finish that Champion series in Spectacular Spider-Man. He, you know, he had a uh, follow-up story that kind of wrapped it up a little bit. Uh, I, I find that he and Chris Claremont are two of the most, at least, you know, off the top of my head. Two of the most significant guys to to do that kind of pull their characters from other series and 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 you know kind of continue their stories because they feel some sort of sense of ownership of them. Uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed that series when it came out, and you know if if nothing else, you know some early John Byrne work. Right. Yeah. I. I think that was the first time they worked together, if I'm not mistaken, but it definitely wouldn't be the last time either. I've often wondered what uh, what Burns' opinion of Mantlo was. Like, were, were they friends, or you know, were they just collaborators, or what? But I've always been curious about that. Be that'd be a question to ask him sometime on his uh, whatever that's called message board or whatever the the Burn Robotics thing. I'm gonna have to. Do some checking into that. I'm just curious, you know, what what his opinion was of him. It was was he just somebody he worked with, or were they actually friends? Because that was, you know, that as a kid, you know, you read this stuff and you you see, uh, you know, names together like that. You know, that that's always my natural assumption is, oh, they're buddies, you know. But it's funny, you know, when you actually learn more about the backstories of some of these titles and and everything that there's actual creative teams that didn't meet each other for decades or in some cases never actually met face to face at all. So, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny, you know, learning stuff like that. And, uh, I definitely didn't appreciate, uh, you know, as a kid that there are a lot of titles where the title got canceled, but an effort was made by somebody, often the writer to still, 
you know, conclude the story that, that they were working on midstream. You know, you mentioned Marv Wolfman. He was big on that. And I, I didn't really appreciate that then. Uh, I don't, for me personally, I don't really think it was until the internet age where you could look this stuff up and people had created online, um, you know, like histories and um, chronologies for characters. That's where it really hit me that, okay, these stories did resolve. They just resolved way off in, you know, some weird other title or something. And that's, that's cool. That's neat that the writers did that. I, I wonder if, I'm not alone and not appreciating that at the time because there, you know often there wasn't really any attention called to that. You know, I mean, how would you know unless you were reading every title or unless you just happened to be reading the other title that this person goes on to? How would you know, you know, that those stories did get resolved? And you know, that's that's one of the beauties, I guess, of of living in the age that we are in now. Is you know, now you can find out that stuff and yeah. that, that's really cool uh, definitely but I, I i do remember like when i was reading the x-men and the reason chris claremont came to mind you know all of a sudden we uh you know had misty knight in there uh, right you know and it's like oh well you know how, how did we get that thing you know did he just decide this was a character he wanted to look at no this was a character he wrote already uh you know and, and it kind of came to me that way and then you know you even see it sort of with some of john burns fantastic four work that he brought back some concepts that he, you know, had worked with with on the X Men, uh, and 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 I I also appreciate that, I, and I and I definitely appreciate the idea of these stories being concluded. One of the things, uh, you know, as a young collector, that made me crazy uh, was when I was going for issues of the uh, original Silver Surfer run, and knowing that it ended at issue eighteen on a cliffhanger, and then they never concluded the story. Uh, and I, re I remember that was my question the first time I ever had an opportunity to speak to Stan Lee. I said, are you going to finish that story or what, basically? <laughs> he was, and being, you know, Stan Lee, you know, he, he treats everything like it's a good question. Well, that's a great question. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, but, but, you know, they did end up doing something in the Spider-Man web spinner series where they concluded that story, but it was definitely unsatisfactory. And I'm definitely tangenting too far off of Bill Mantlo here, but I do <laughs> appreciate, you know, ultimately the bottom line is I appreciate him feeling some sort of sense of ownership of his stories. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I, I would hope it wasn't just, you know, oh, well, I have this, this idea and I, I hate to waste it. I hope it's, you know, that he had this burning, you know, feeling of, I have, I have a story to tell. Right. You know, and, and I didn't get a chance to conclude it, so let me do that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of my thoughts on that. Uh, let's see. Some of the other stuff he worked on in 76, uh, or starting in 76, Marvel Team-Up. He had a, a pretty good uh, body work on that. Um, the There's not really any particular issues that stand out for me in that one, other than uh, there's one... Uh, I don't have the issue in front. I want to say it's like number 39. Yes, Marvel Team Up 39, Spider-Man and the Human Torch. I just that, that one just gives me the warm fuzzies. I remember that being uh, one of those Grandma's Porch comics when I was a kid. You know, it was, it was always out on Grandma's Porch, you know. Um, he worked on uh, Marvel 2 and 1. Then in 77... Uh, Iron Man, he wrote uh, Iron Man for a good number of issues that uh, butted right up against uh, when David Michelinie uh, took over, and it was uh, you know the famous uh, Michelinie and uh, 
Ramita Jr. and Bob Layton run, you know, when that started. So he was the writer just prior to when that all starts. And then one that, uh, that I marked, and I think you mentioned this one before, was The Human Fly. Now, I'd read scattered issues of that as a kid, and it didn't really make much of an impression on me. And I think it was mostly because of the, the art inside. But I recently, and I don't even know why I did it, honestly. I, I think just because it was there. Uh, but I recently acquired the entire run of that out of uh, the the $2 or less cheap bins at some local shops here. So now I now have a complete collection of that title. And just knowing that it's Mantlo on the whole series of that makes me now want to sit down and, and give it a second try and, and you know give it a fresh look and, and see if I like it. I, I still don't really care for the art. Um but I, I, you know, I really like Mantlo as a writer, so I, I, I do want to give that a, a fresh look. Now, did you read that one at all? Uh, <laughs> I had purchased them when they were out, but I don't honestly remember ever reading them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the only one that that kind of sticks in my mind, and nothing of the the story does, but the only one that sticks in my mind as having as a kid was there's one issue that Byrne did the cover. I, I can't remember if he just inked the cover or if he did the whole cover, but I had that one because I was a John Byrne completist. And I know I read it, it's just I don't remember anything about it. But uh but yeah, like I said, I just I happened to be going through some cheap boxes at a at a local uh, well, you know, we have um Coliseum of Comics here in the Orlando area. They have several different locations. And they'll often put Bronze Age stuff in these $2 bins. And sometimes it's a little beat up, but you know, it's, it's a good place to, you know, to acquire some stuff that normally is not, you know, all that cheap. And, uh, they happen to have, and I, you know, as I'm flipping through, it would be like a random issue here, a random issue there. Well, after a time I got to realizing, man, I think I've seen every issue of this series in these boxes. So I went back and started all over again, pulling them out. And by the time I finished pulling them out, yep, it was the whole series. So I'm like, well, what the hell? Here it is at my fingertips. Let me go ahead and just buy it. So I ended up buying the whole series. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, also started, he started in 77 uh, working. Now, he had two runs on Spectacular Spider-Man. So the first run... Um, featured uh, frequent appearances from the White Tiger, which you know he had uh, co-created with George Perez. And I remember that. I remember the White Tiger being in there a lot and not really understanding why uh, as a kid reading that title. But I liked the character. I, I just never under, understood why he was in it so much. But I now think, it makes I think sense. He, also, he also used that character in his Marvel team-up run. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Um. Uh, he used that series, uh, his first run on Spectacular Spider-Man, to wrap up unresolved plot elements from the Champion series, uh, and he also wrote uh, multiple issue story uh, a multiple issue storyline that included the first work uh, by Frank Miller on Daredevil, and I remember that one because that's the one where Spider-Man loses his sight and he essentially gets like tutored by Daredevil on how to use his spider sense as radar sense essentially and that one sticks out to me i remember when miller became like a hot thing and you know daredevil became a big thing they reprinted that in a in a prestige 
one shot, um, and I think it was just called Spider Man and Daredevil or Daredevil and Spider Man, one of the two, but it was a reprinting of Mantlo's uh, spectacular Spider Man stuff with those guys. I think it was a two or three issue crossover, or, you know, a team up, rather, something like that. He, during that run, he created uh, Carry On, which was the clone of Professor Warren. The He, he kind of looked like like death or uh, he, he kind of looked like an unwrapped mummy or something. But that, you know, that character is, I think he's still around in the comics today, isn't he? I don't know if he's around now, but I always kind of felt that that character was more spooky and formidable than the way he eventually got treated. When he was introduced in Spectacular Spider-Man, I thought... You know that was a real good threat that character, and then I yeah. seem to, I seem to think he's been you know the character's been dismissed by a lot of other writers, and I I think you know it's a shame when you see that done and you see it done all too often, where where people kind of disrespect other people's creations. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's true. I, I you know that's that's the way I've kind of felt about that one, whether you know whether correctly or not. That's the way I felt. <laughs> well, it's funny you say disrespecting uh, you know, creations because I'm about to do it right now. He, uh, you know, not everything that, you know, I, I love the guy, but not everything he created was a winner. He actually created two of the, in my opinion, biggest morts out there. He created the Hypno Hustler and Razorback, <laughs> which are both. Pretty ridiculous characters, honestly. But, but they're see, fun. See, you know, Razorback when he was first introduced in in Spectacular Spider-Man, I, I thought he was I thought he was kind of a fun character. He was meant to be a Mort. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't meant to be a, uh, a you know, a superhero that was going to get his own series. I always pictured him to be played by like Hoyt Axton uh, if yes. they made a movie. Yes. Uh, and, and and I, you know, he he was he was to me like akin to the Gibbon. Uh, you know, he's not not somebody who he can take seriously and give his own series, but a character, if written correctly, would be very very entertaining. I think I just could never get over the giant pig head. You know, the the wild boar, whatever. You know, the Razorback. He he he's another one of those Marvel characters, and there's a million of them, where he's wearing an animal head, not as a mask but over his own head. And that, to me, always looks ridiculous because you then you're essentially, you're, you, what's that character, Double Header, you know, where he's got mm. two heads and he just looks ridiculous. And yeah, beast. So, yeah. And <laughs> he, he also he, reminds me, you know, as, a, as you know, once we get past uh, 1989, now he reminds me of the, of the deleted scene from Who Framed Roger Rabbit where they... they painted uh, the the pig head you know the animated pig head over top of eddie valiant's head hmm. that, that now every time i see razorback he reminds me of eddie valiant with a pig head on so it, he just he's so ridiculous he was he was also <laughs> a character of his day because he was you know taking advantage of the the trucker craze because he had the right. giant the giant semi that he would drive around uh and it was called the big pig uh, right i hate the fact that i'm so well versed i'll tell on you i did like when john Byrne. <laughs> I liked when John Byrne got a hold of him, though, in uh, Sensational She-Hulk, and there was that one issue, Space Truck, or Star, I think it was called Star Truck, and it was using the Star Trek, the motion picture font on the cover, but it just said Star Truck, and it was all about um, She-Hulk and Razorback, and it's ridiculous. 
and it's a, it's a good fun issue. So yeah, and that's, that's um, to me that's that's, that's the that's purpose right on of the that same character. Level of like the, right, right. That's something that's right up there with uh, with Human Fly. Um, that I wish I had again. I didn't realize it was Mantlo at the time, but I'm pretty sure I've seen all together in those you know two dollar or less bins I was talking about before. Um, in '78, he did all. I think there's seven issues, seven or eight issues of Man from Atlantis, and I wish I'd known it was him because I I, I liked that TV sh- series, although I have very vague memories of it. Um, and I remember I had an issue or two as a kid that I really liked, so I don't know why I didn't scoop those out of the bins. But the next time I see them, I, I'm going to get them. I, I think mostly I didn't get them because because uh, I didn't like the art. And I want to say it's even – I think it's the same artist. Isn't it Frank Robbins on that that he worked with on Human Fly? Very possibly. I, I think. I don't, it's it's, it, one of it's your an artist I don't favorites. think highly of, whoever it is, but – Maybe, maybe uh, we should maybe we should do a focus issue on, uh, episode on Frank Robbins just to see if we can make you if we could turn you slightly. Well, I mean, I I don't hate everything because we did that. I, I couldn't quote your rhyme and verse what it is, but we did that issue of um, of um, the shadow that one time. Um, it was it was an issue because when I think of DC's shadow, I think of Mike Kaluta. But there were issues uh, of that series that Robbins was the artist, and we did an issue of that ages ago, and I actually liked it on on that particular issue. So, and I like Robbins as a writer. I think he he was a really good Batman writer. I just don't much care for his art. And yeah, I'm flipping through the credits here on Mike's Amazing World, and yeah, it was Frank Robbins on uh, on Man from Atlantis. But still, I, I'd be willing to give it a shot, especially with it being uh, Mantlo that wrote it. So in 79, um, he started work on, again, you know, the two things that he, he's probably best known for, um, Micronauts. Now, he wrote all but the last issue of that series. So 58 issues plus annuals plus the crossover mini, the uh, X-Men Micronauts uh, miniseries in 1984. Um, now I had here that he created Bug. Essentially, even though the characters existed, you know, the Micronauts as toys, the, there were no character bios. They had names like, you know, just vague names like Time Traveler and stuff, but there they weren't characters. So he essentially he created the Micronauts. You know, just as you say, just from an image, just from a toy. Um, but not really given anything to work with other than, here you go, here's the toy, you've got the license, go. And he did. And so, you know, he created Bug, Captain Universe came out of that. Um, and, I mean, that's a, a hell of a series. We've talked about it, you know, a lot of times, so I don't want to go on too much about it. But uh, it's worth noting, you know, Micronauts won the 1979 Eagle Award for favorite new comic title. And it was a really good book. Um the other big one, uh, and this for me is, you know, I, I hold this in incredibly high regard, is uh, Rom Space Knight. He did the whole damn thing. All 75 issues, all the annuals, um, you know, he created uh, an amazing universe for that character. And, uh, I mean, this is my fondest wish for, uh, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know that Marvel does not own Rom 
you know, so they, they can't use that character. They can't use these stories, but I, you know, I wish that there was a way that they could work all that out because I would love to see this character and Mantlo's mythology brought to the big screen because it's just begging for the big screen. It's perfect for it. Um, the whole ROM mythos is just made for, you know, that, that grand cosmic adventure scope on the big screen. It would just be incredible. But, uh, yeah, such a good such a good run. I'm so glad I spent the time to uh, to hunt down all the issues. It can be done. I mean, you can get the entire series uh, out of the cheap bins. I did. I got every every single issue, all the annuals, everything out of the. You know, I don't think I ever paid more than a dollar for any single issue. Yeah, and, I'm uh, still missing about three issues of that run, maybe four, uh, and I'm <laughs> I'm looking for them exclusively in the cheap bins. So, yep. at, so, at some point I'll have them. Some, you know, some are harder to find than others, but I, I did get them all out of the cheap bin. So, yeah, like I say, it, it can be done, and it's so worth doing because it's a great, great series. Um, Mantlo's story is incredible. Um, Buscema, who, you know, was always kind of hit and miss for me, but he's really good on that title. He did the bulk of the title. Uh, you know, as, as artist, and then you know, a lot of the earliest issues of that series had incredible um, Michael Golden covers on them as well, and it was just it was an exciting story. It it was unique. There's there's not anything that's really like it, and it was just fun. And that to me, you know, that that's really what I think of most when I think of Bill Mantlo. Anyways, his comics were just fun. He 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 understood comics and i think he understood the reasons why people like like us read comics and the things that we expected out of comics and that's why i like his work because of that feel that he just he gets me you know he knows the kind of stuff that that i would get excited about and you could tell he was really into the medium um let's see what else i got here uh so it was Mantlo who convinced uh, Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time, to obtain the license for those toys, both the Micronauts and ROM. So Shooter uh, hired Mantlo to script their series. And Mantlo and uh, Michael Golden, the artist, created uh, the Micronauts, you know, the backstory, the history, mythology, and all of that. And they actually uh, created a, a special alphabet for the series as well. Uh, Micronauts, along with uh, Moon, uh, Moon Knight and Kazar the Savage, became one of Marvel's first ongoing series to be distributed exclusively to comic book stores, um, starting with Micronauts number 38. Uh, moving on from there, 1980. Uh, this is a big one, although it's it's weird. I own this whole thing, the, the whole run, but it's kind of a blind spot. I don't know that I've read much of it. Um, Incredible Hulk. And uh, he wrote that for a long time. Uh, he began on 245. I think his last issue was the issue just before Byrne took over at 315-ish, something like that. Uh, he did a five-year run in the series, uh, which was noted for his depiction of the Hulk as uh, highly emotional and humanized, uh, rather than a bestial, you know, being bestial and savage. Among the adversaries he created for the series were the UFOs, uh, Ursa Major and the Soviet Super Soldiers. He also created uh, Brian and Rebecca Banner, who were Bruce and uh, Bruce Banner's father and mother, which I had no idea. 
and the ethnically diverse characters of the Arabian Night, Collective Man, Firebird, and Sabra. Uh, Summarizing his early years with the Hulk, Mantlo remarked, I did retreads of all old Hulk stories to try and find a new direction and just kept doing more and more repetition of what had already happened. Then Al Al Milgram, who was the editor, said, uh, well, don't accept this. If you want to make changes, make them. Take some risks. That's when we decided to give Hulk uh, Bruce Banner's intelligence. And from that point on, I felt uh, as if I had finally had a direction and control over the character. So I guess I took uh, a year and a half, maybe two years uh, to get to that point. And I remember some of that. I've, I think I've read spotty issues of this run, but I do own the whole thing. Um, I, I've got to make the time to sit down and, uh, and read this. Uh, I've got to bump it higher on my list because it, it sounds like really uh, exciting stuff. Are, are you familiar with that at all? Uh, I'm sure that I read it, <laughs> but it doesn't stand out in my mind so much. Did I lose and, it again? Oops. Can you hear me now? Yes. I think I had it accidentally muted when I thought it was not. Uh, <laughs> believe me. Anyway, uh, I definitely, I'm, I'm sure that I've read those issues, but they don't jump out at me as, as being something where I'm totally familiar with the specific run. So that's something I probably have to pull and, and take a look at and, and, you know, reacquaint myself with. Which right. would would not be that would you know would not be much of a chore to be honest with you. <laughs> now now we finally get into an area that uh, th- this is kind of where I came into comics is that I, I started getting hot and heavy into reading comics you know right off the stands and everything and right about 1981 82. So his second run on uh, Spectacular Spider Man. And this was some awesome stuff. So he was take he took over from Stern. Uh, Roger Stern had had kind of sucked me into Spectacular Spider-Man, um, but then he left, and Mantlo took over. And I think there may have been some fill-in people in between them. I, I can't remember, but I st- I stuck with that book for a long, long time, all through uh, Mantlo's run. And let me see here. I can tell you which. I had it pulled up here a second ago, which issues it was. He was on Spectacular. Well, he, he again, he did two runs. Um, and it was in the early issues. It was, now it's spotty a bit, but it's basically, it was 9 through 42. Um, and then other writers came in. Uh, Stern came in for a while, but then he came back to the book Um with 61 and it's pretty solid 61 through about 89 and then a couple scattered ones afterwards but from from essentially 61 through 89 he was the regular writer and that was some really really good stuff i I remember really enjoying that and uh probably the the two biggest things i remember best about that were um, of course, Cloak and Dagger came out of that. He created Cloak and Dagger, and and they I don't know how popular they are today, but at the time they were really popular. They actually went off and and got I think they had a couple minis, and then they eventually got their own series and everything. But they were really cool characters. And they did they did um, have I know a, they had a TV uh, series. Though. Yeah, that's what I was just going to mention that they yeah. had a TV series. So obviously, people saw merit in the characters to 
you know, and that this, it's not as if that series was, you know, 30 years ago. That was recent. So, right. So obviously right. They've, they've, they've maintained some, uh, some, some level of, of credibility to date. I remember, uh, Silvermane, uh, became the, he, he got, uh, you know, the bionic man treatment, he became, you know, the, the cyborg, you know, he was the, the old man, he was dying of old age or something. He was like a, he was like a godfather type. And then he ended up being put into like a robotic body. He was kind of a cool character. I thought he was a cool villain. Um, but really the, the biggest other thing that stuck with me from that run was, uh, was issue 74 with, um, Deb Whitman. I always liked her. I always thought that she was one of the better, um, I don't think she was really a love interest for Peter, but I always wanted her to be. I think he was interested in her, but then she had, I want to say her boyfriend was like Biff something, Biff Bashford or some stupid thing like that. So she was more into him, but she figured out that he was Spider-Man. And all of that ended up coming to a head with issue 74, which for like decades uh, she didn't come back again until uh after he revealed his secret identity in civil war so that, you know that was like decades but i always liked her character and, and 74 was a was a really really good issue and he also really played up and developed the relationship and um felicia hardy the black cat and i always liked that stuff too and i, I don't know if it was mantlo necessarily um alone doing it but i remember there was the whole development of the black cat developing um a power where she went to the power broker and got the power of bad luck she thought it was luck but it turned out it was the power of bad luck and all of that and you know so that was some really exciting stuff i i I have really good fond memories of uh, his second uh, unspectacular i just that that was kind of my spider-man book uh you know my spider-man gateway book as a kid I, i love that um, and then 82, um, you know, you're talking about diving in feet first, you know, I'm, I'm here, I am just kind of discovering Marvel and buying it off the stands and, uh, you know, outcomes Marvel superhero contest of champions, you know, their first limited series. I bought that right off the rack and man, I mean, every character who was anybody was in that book and it was awesome. He he wasn't the sole writer on it. It was uh, kind of a collaborative effort with other writers. But that, oh my God, that's a good book. We need to cover that sometime. Yeah, I always I felt to... that was the uh, precursor to Secret Wars. Yeah, and I, and and that's the precursor to a lot of the you know mega cross summer crossover things that they've done over the years. So yeah, there's something to be yep. said for that, and we probably should uh, do a, do a, uh, a you know do a single issue spotlight on each issue of that. It's only three issues, if I remember. Yeah, right. yeah, it's it's th- only three, but I, I remember just being packed. You know, it's packed full of stuff, and I mean, you know, just so many characters. It was the first time I laid eyes on a good number of characters in the Marvel Universe. The the one that always comes immediately to mind is Sasquatch. I didn't even know that there was a Marvel version of Bigfoot until I saw him uh, in, the, I think it's in the very first issue of that series. You know, here was, because there was, as, as the characters were being called by, I think it was the Game Master, um, you know, in the in the first issue... A lot of them just got like a one panel, like, you know, showing them in action or whatever. And, you know, it'd be one panel in their name and then you'd move on to the next character. 
And a lot of those characters, you know, that was the first time. And I can remember the one for Sasquatch. He was like swinging like a like an orangutan. He looked more like a giant mutated orangutan. And he's swinging through the, the jungle or something. And, uh, you know, that was the first shot of him. Uh, also in 82, he did uh, the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries. And, you know, you and I, not long ago, we uh, we covered the fourth issue of that where, you know, that's the issue where Magneto reveals that he's Wanda and Pietro's father. Uh, so we covered that one on the show, but he wrote that whole miniseries. <clears throat> in 83 and 84, he did uh, Marvel Super Special, the, the adaptations of the film's uh, Rock and Rule, which is an animated movie. Uh, the Last Starfighter and Buckaroo Banzai. So that brings us uh, right up to my book that I've chosen for this time. So uh, he, as I mentioned before, you know, Jack of Hearts uh, was a character that Mantlo created. You know, he created him in a backup feature in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number twenty-two, and the character popped up pretty frequently in you know various titles that Mantlo worked on, such as Incredible Hulk and Iron Man. Um, he even had his own solo one shot in Marvel premiere number 44 uh, by Mantlo and Keith Giffen. But in 1984, Mantlo finally got a chance to more fully explore this creation of his, Jack of Hearts, with a four issue limited series. So the book that I'm bringing for this time around is Jack of Hearts number one from January 1984. It was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on October 18th, 1983. Cover and interior art by George Freeman, who i got to be honest, I'd never heard of. But this cover is why I picked up the book, uh, and it's why I subsequently tracked down the other three issues over the years, because I just liked the covers. I thought the art was, uh, was stunning, and it was eye-catching, and I was just really curious about it. And I always thought that Jack of Hearts was a really cool-looking, kind of goofy character, so I, I was curious to check it out. Uh, original cover price, $0.60. Cents. Bill Mantlo, of course, is the writer, George Freeman artist, John Morelli, letterer, Nick Burns, uh, no relation to Dick Burns, colorist, Bob Budiansky, editor, uh, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief, and our story is entitled Murmur of the Heart. It is a dark and stormy night. Jack Hart, the colorful and powerful figure known as the Jack of Hearts, streaks into the sky intent on killing himself by expending all of his incredible energies. But all he actually does is cause a lot of property damage and damn near uh, downs a commercial jetliner before finally coming to the defeated realization that no matter how much steam he lets off, he cannot burn himself out. Bummed, he allows S.H.I.E.L.D. to take him away in hopes that maybe uh, they can find a way to cure him. Sometime later, at the palatial Hart estate, Dr. Marcy Kane, former love interest, shows up at S.H.I.E.L.D.'s invite to assist in their efforts to help the Jack of Hearts. But seeing Marcy again just gets him all worked up and agitated, and his power begins to grow again, threatening to explosively release Fortunately, the protective bubble that he's been placed in is able to gas him in time to suppress the event, but this still upsets Marcy. Some asshole shows up trying to make a stink about how Jack is no longer competent to handle the financial affairs of his deceased father's estate, but then Nick Fury uh, arrives to bully the guy into submission. 
Marcy is escorted to her quarters where she proceeds to look through Jack's case file, which provides a nice little backstory history lesson on the character for those of us, like me, who weren't all that familiar with it to begin with. Turns out Jack's parents were big brain energy research scientists who apparently discovered a limitless energy source. But through a series of unfortunate events, Jack was accidentally driven into the vat containing the so-called zero fluid, which permeated his every cell and changed him into the seething powerhouse, the Jack of Hearts. There's even brief mention of his adventures, both with and against the likes of the White Tiger, the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, and Spider-Man, all titles that uh, Mantlo had worked on. Later, in the nursery where Jack is kept, Marcy tries again to talk to him, but all they do is argue. Uh, Marcy pleads her case that she cares for Jack and only wants to help him. If only his awesome energies could somehow be siphoned off, but Jack wonders what Marcy could possibly do to help when the best science's shield could provide have failed. Marcy hints that there are others that may understand his people's, uh, his mother's people, for instance. But ju- uh, this just confuses and angers Jack as to what Marcy could possibly know about his mother, a woman who was long dead before he and Marcy even met. Just then, the facility is attacked by flying saucers that Marcy believes have come for Jack. Not wishing anything to, ha- uh, to happen to him and realizing his own incredible energy is the only thing that can save him, Marcy frees him from his bubble and the Jack of Hearts once again takes to the skies. There are fireworks aplenty as Jack makes short work of the space invaders. Realizing that they don't stand a chance against him and with shield reinforcements approaching, the saucers beat a hasty retreat. But Jack wonders if Fury coming to us is, is he coming to assist or imprison him? Wishing to maintain his freedom, Jack swoops down out of the sky and scoops Marcy up. It's high time they had a private talk, he thinks, and Marcy couldn't agree more. Next month, heart to heart. And I just got to say, I liked this. I liked this a hell of a lot. Um, This was my first time reading it, despite the fact that I've owned it for years and years and years. Um, This was one of those things where I had acquired like, I don't know, like three of the four issues and then just lacked an issue. And because I lacked an issue, it just sat for decades unread. And uh, not too long ago, I got whatever the hell missing issue it was out of the cheap bins. And uh, I've been itching to read it ever since. So, um, you know, despite struggling a bit, looking over the list of Mantlo's credits to, to try to figure out what I wanted to bring the show. This one just kept jumping out to me because I, it's been on my want to read list for so long. And uh, I'm really glad I chose this one because I dug it. Um, I really liked the art. I am totally unfamiliar with this George Freeman guy, but I really liked his art. To me, it was, uh, it was like Joe Staten meets Charles Vess. Um, I can only describe it's kind of like a cleaner Mike Mignola or Luke McDonald type of style. Um, and I and I dug it. I really uh, I thought it was a, a really good art style. I'm I did not read the subsequent issues, but uh, I'm going to load them up. And uh, I mean, I am going to read them because I, I was intrigued by this. I thought it was it was good stuff. What did you think, Paul? I, I think this is just yet another example of the trend that we've kind of hit on already where, where Mantelow gives his characters such a rich and, you know, realistic feeling backstory where, 
you know, and, and here he's presenting a lot of it for us. Uh, but I think there's also a lot that's in the subtext, you know, as far as the emotional aspects of it. But, you know, you, the characters feel real. I think that's the biggest strength of Mantelow's writing. His characters feel real. Their reactions feel real. They're, they're you know, they, they don't feel like they exist just for taking, just for that story. They feel like they have, you know, again, a rich background. Uh, and in this particular issue, you know, I think that, you know, he presents a lot of the background, but there's a lot of the emotion, which, you know, is coming out when he's arguing with Marcy and all of that, that I feel like, you know, you're, you're getting that and you understand where it's coming from, but it isn't, you're not being hit over the head with it. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it was a real strength that he had as a writer uh, and, and I think that was, I, I think you could give him virtually any character and he could make him interesting. You know, you, you, you mentioned, uh, Razorback and, and I gotta tell you, when I read those issues, I thought they were fun and I thought he was interesting. He had a whole background, you know, his sister had been kidnapped by the cult and he was trying to rescue her. And, and, you know, there was a whole lot going on, even, even with such a, a silly minor character, uh, and, and I see that in, in this, and I see it in virtually everything we read by him. I, you know, that's that's you know, and I, I was kind of picking on uh, on Razorback, you know, mostly because I, I think he, I think he looks ridiculous. But you know, in all fairness, so does the Jack of Hearts. I mean, come on, this is a character that's based off a playing card for God's sakes. But there's something cool about him, and I think it's. You know, I, I really it's Mantle, it's the way he fills in the story on this because this guy has more material written all over him, honestly, but he makes it work. I mean, he makes him a really intriguing character. And uh, yeah, I was really sucked in by this. I, I, I'm really anxious to, to read the rest of the mini and, and see uh, you know where it goes and everything. And I, I really don't – I remember see, – it's funny because he's one of those characters. I remember him, seeing him all over the place. You know, and again, it turns out that's thanks to Matlo because wherever he went, he kind of you know took the character with him and, and placed him in those other books. So I remember seeing him around, but it was just one of those things where I saw him. I thought he was cool. Just didn't really know a heck of a lot about him. So this mini was neat because it kind of shades the, the character in a bit more. Um, you know, as to what his situation, you know, what his origin is, what his situation is, you know, what's going on with him type of thing. And it, it's really got me curious because the only other thing I really remembered about him is when he famously blowed up during, uh, I think that was Avengers Disassembled, right? Yes. And, yeah. and, and that, that actually bothered me. That, that, again, it felt like a situation where they were using, treating someone else's creation that deserved some respect with, with a lack of respect. Right. Uh, and I, that was the last I saw of him, but I do see, uh, He's back. On, uh that, it, yeah, that he has been resurrected. And I'm glad for that. And I, I hope, uh, that he's being treated correctly for whatever that's worth. Right. Well, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but now reading this, that actually makes no sense at all because that's what Jack's trying to do in the beginning. I mean, that's how this story starts. He's trying to end himself by blowing up. So how would blowing up kill him in Avengers Disassembled? That makes no sense at all. Well, I guess, I guess it's it's you know, I guess it's that the energy uh, dissipates and that he was trying to do it to you know to end his suffering uh, and. 
it really does make it easy to resurrect him to saying, yes, the explosion in Avengers Disassembled was more uh, dramatic than anything that the character had undergone. And it was, you know, closer to to, to making him, uh, you know, no longer exist. But he does still exist. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, 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 and eventually it did come back together. That's that's how I, how I see that. I'm glad. I'm really glad because yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm not a big fan of just yeah you know, yeah. Let's just end characters, you know. I yeah because somebody created that, you know that, and especially you know it, it's different if it's somebody that was created you know with the intention of eh he's just yeah he's just a throwaway. I don't care what you do with him. But clearly, when it's a character that was created by a character with, with love and affection and you can tell that from their body of work then i you know yeah i think it's kind of disrespectful to you know to just arbitrarily off that character uh, especially when it's a situation you know like this case where you know there's no way to go to that to that writer you know to that creator for their okay for their blessing to you know alter the character or to off the characters so yeah um, that's all I really got on this. You want to do grades on this one? Well, I'm just going to touch quickly on the artwork oh, okay. that you mentioned, because I didn't do that, and obviously that's not, you know, our uh, objective here in the artwork, but it's, you know, it's something to touch on. Uh, this is yet another one. I, I can't believe I'm saying this as often as I am, but this is another one where I think it would benefit if it was, uh, if it didn't have the color. And I'm surprised for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I usually do like color. It makes it makes books easier on the eyes a lot of times. Uh, but also because Jack of Hearts is a character, you know, such a colorful character to begin with. And I, I think the costume, you know, you mentioned silliness. I don't know that it would ever work in live action. But in comic books, I think it's really cool looking, the costume. So, uh, you know, I'm good with that. Uh, but the, the artwork just... Like I said, it almost seems like it, it doesn't need the color, and I think it would probably, you know, probably look better to my eyes if it didn't have it. Um, it it is. I think when when you mentioned Joe Staten, all of a sudden I said, "Ooh," because that is I, I that's a connection that I was making in my mind without being able to figure out what it was. I, I was saying, "Who does this remind me of?" Uh, and Joe Staten is an artist, uh, you know, who we've, we've both professed love for his work, but he's another one who I shouldn't like. His, his artwork doesn't really fit the mold of what, of the stuff that I classically point to and say, this is great. Uh, and I think a lot of Joe Staten's strength is based on his, uh, not necessarily his character depictions, but so much, uh, is based on storytelling and angles that he uses in in showing his his work and and i think this artwork has both of those qualities it's it's similar you know some of the facial renditions are similar but i'm also seeing a similarity to the composition and the storytelling uh so i I would wonder i'm not familiar at all with george freeman but i wonder if he maybe was part of staten's studio at some time or something because it does feel like there's a connection there that i would not have otherwise seen. Uh, well, I'm looking through his body of work right now, and I just stumbled on something that this, this is definitely going to have to be a future episode. Um, Brave and the Bold number 197, which, if memory serves, this tells the the story and the and the love story. The I, I think this does the marriage of the Earth Two Batman and Catwoman. I think. 
And that's by uh, Staten as the penciler and Freeman as the inker. And I have fond but vague memories of this issue, so that that could be uh, that could be a good one to look at in the future on the show because because uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm a huge Joe Staten fan. Off the top of my head, I have no familiarity with this issue, and I would definitely love to cover it. Cool. So let's 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 put a pin in that one and get back to it. So yeah. just just going with you know with what I was saying though the the artwork. It's it's all work like Staten that shouldn't necessarily work for me, but does, and and it does on a on a on a fairly high level. Uh, like always with with all work like this, I kind of wish that maybe I could find an anchor who who would just kind of clean it up a little bit more to just kind of push it a little bit more into the style that I like. Uh, but you know, overall, I'm pretty solid with it. As I said earlier, uh, you know, I think the writing is. It, it's there's a depth to it. I think that's that's what I was looking to say earlier when we were talking about this stuff. There's a depth to the writing that makes these characters feel fleshed out. Uh, I keep saying it's the backstory, but I don't even know if it's if it's so much that as it is that he he just gives the characters a real voice, uh, and they don't feel like they're just living on the page of the comic. They feel like they have more going on than what you see on the surface. And I, again, I think that's, that's an innate skill that a lot of writers don't have. Uh, I, I don't know how hard Mantlo had to work on that, uh, or if it just came to him naturally, but it's something that I see over and over again in his work. And it's, it's in this book just as well. Uh, this, and, and then on top of that, he created a story that's compelling enough from its narrative that it does make you want to see where it's going to go in issue number two. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's just a rote retelling of the same story you've you've read over and over again. So you know, kudos to Bill Mantlo and his writing. Uh, he 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 was one of the greats. And I guess you know, after we rate this one, we'll we'll just uh, touch on his, uh, his his departure from writing uh, and and how that's such a tragedy. Absolutely. Well, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll give ratings on this one. Um, I love the cover. I'm going to give the cover a straight-up A+, because it did its job. It caught me, and it made me buy the issue with knowing nothing about it. Uh, I mean, I, I recognize the character. I, I don't really know him, but I, you know, I'd seen him around. But that cover just was like, wow, that is a cool cover. I must own this comic. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, very well composed. I think the color is beautiful. I'll agree with you over the interior color of the book. I, I think it it is a bit distracting in parts. It's a bit too colorful and flashy, but this cover totally works for me. It, it's really cool. Um, I like your comment about live action. I'd love to see somebody cosplay as this character just to see does it work, you know, in in, in reality in live action. But uh, but yeah, this this would be a character. I, you know, never say never, but I'd be. I'd be really shocked if this character ever makes the transition into live action, but it would be cool if they did. Um, so anyway, A plus for the cover. Interior art, I, I really dig it. I like it a lot. I, I can't believe this guy has escaped my notice all this time because I, I really get a strong, uh, a strong state and vibe off this guy. Um, Marcy reminds me, I, I don't know what the character's name is, but um, E-Man from Charlton, you know the the Staten character 
had this, I don't know if it was his wife, his girlfriend, whatever, but he had this, this girl partner with him. And that's totally what she reminds me of is that, that girl partner, uh, by Staten. Um, I really like it. I, I think it's, it's really very good. I'm going to say, um, I think I'm going to go at A minus on the interior art, and I and I think a lot of that is only because, um, like you say, the the color, the color is a bit distracting in in places. Um, yeah, it'd be very curious to see this in uh, in black and white, but overall, I really do like it. And again, I, there's a strong um, Charles Vess influence, I think, here as well, particularly on that page. They're, they're not numbered, unfortunately, but. Uh, the page that is the flashback to all of um, Jack's adventures with the other heroes, that Spider-Man on that page looks just like Charles Vest Spider-Man to me. So I, w- I was kind of impressed with that. Um, and then lastly, the, the writing, uh, I'm giving it a straight up A+. I was totally sucked in by this. Um, I mean, it, it, it comes right out of the gate. Uh, you know, firing and uh, and it intrigued me. It sucked me in. It made me care about the characters. It made me, you know, interested in where this is going. And uh, I can't re- wait to read the rest of it. So, uh, straight up grade on this is A. It, uh, I was really blown away by. It. I think it's really, really good stuff. And I think it's a, a wonderful example of what Mantlo did best, which was, uh, you know, he he made stories that were exciting, that were interesting. He made real characters that you cared about. And uh, and I, I really enjoyed this. I, I'm glad this is the one that I picked. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, uh, you know, the cover, you know, I I, I have one, one criteria for A+, and that's iconic. And I think this one is. Uh, this this is an issue, you know, that that I, I think should be uh, on a poster in people's homes somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I just think I think it's a great comic cover, uh, and and I, I can't imagine seeing this on the stand as a uh, as a youth and not saying, "Let me buy this." As a youth, the two youths, <laughs> uh, I can't I can't see you know seeing this and not wanting to buy it. I honestly can't. Um, the interior art, as I said, I think it would be better served without the color, uh, but I really do think it's, you know, it, it's better, better than, it, it's one of these ones where you're going to look closely to see how good it is. Like, you don't realize it right. at, first, at first blush, but then when you start reading it and you start, as long as you're paying attention to the art, you realize how, how what the quality is. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned the connection to, to, Joe Staten and all of that, and Joe Staten would be, uh, you know, senior to Freeman, uh, and and I, I like I said, I mean, you know, for all I know, he worked in the studio with him or whatever, and and maybe you know learned a lot from him. Uh, you mentioned Charles Vess, and they are contemporaries, so I wouldn't be surprised right. if they if they work together at some point. You know, they're right around the same age, and uh, you know, I I'm not familiar with Freeman, but I, I think maybe I would like to be. Um, I think the art is really solid. I'm not ready to go. I'm not. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go B plus, and it, and it's grudging B plus that I feel like I should be giving it, you know, the slightly higher grade. But uh, you know, the color doesn't do it for me. And like I said, I think the inking could just be slightly tighter. Uh, but other than that, it's it's really really good. Uh, the story, uh, you know, I, what what can I say? It's just again, Bill Mandelow just doing. An, an incredible job of, of putting together 
you know, characters and making them believable and then putting them in situations that are uh, compelling. So, uh, you know, A plus on the story. Uh, so overall, the book gets a solid A, bordering on an A plus. Awesome. Well, good. I'm glad you liked it. I, I I was really impressed with this one. Well, I think we got just enough time to, to wrap up the rest of the notes I've got on this one. So moving on, um, 1985. Now this one, I, I this one's long been of interest to me. So Alpha Flight. So there's a fun story here. So Mantlow was working on the Hulk, you know, and he had that that long five year run that we talked about working on the Hulk, developing that character and everything. And then the Hulk with issue 300 was banished to the crossways of infinity uh, by um, Dr. Strange. And he went off on these weird, wacky adventures in this other dimension and everything. And at the same time, Byrne was, you know, he created and was developing the, the alpha flight series. Well, at some point they decided to swap books so Byrne went off to do Hulk in, uh, you know, that was a, a short but really exciting run where he brought the Hulk back to Earth and all that stuff. And Mantlo took over on Alpha Flight. And that was my last issue of Alpha Flight. I didn't read beyond that point, um, mostly because, you know, primarily because, um, you know, I was following it for Byrne. And while I enjoyed it while Byrne was doing it, I just didn't really have all that much interest in, you know, going forward, you know, no, no slight to Matlow. Um, but over the years, you know, I would occasionally wonder, well, whatever happened to those guys? Cause I, I noted, you know, through flipping through bins and things like that, that the series continued on for, I mean, burn only did like the first 28 or 29 issues, but that series ran well over a hundred issues. It ran for like 10 years. So I always kind of wondered, well, where did it go and, and what happened with all of that? Well, thanks to our friend Luke Giaconetti, I now have the entire series of Alpha Flight. And I now I just need to make the time to sit down and read it. Um, but I'm really curious where it went because uh, Mantlo you know, took, took over and, uh, and had quite a run on that. Do you have any familiarity with that at all, Paul? With, with, the, uh, with where he went with the characters? Yeah, not really. I do, you know. I know the the whole story that you said about them swapping books, but as far as uh, the actual, you know, result of that story wise, uh, I think I own a number of Mantlo's Alpha Flight issues, but I don't don't have any memory of ever reading them. So it's something like you that uh, I I feel like I should make the time and read it. You know, Man Mantlo's up there with some of the great great writers that you know that i seek out you know that that their their work is so universal universally compelling to me that i should be seeking out everything to read it right Uh, and and i think you know that that that's one of the things now that i need to do is to sit down and read those i'm i'm ashamed that i sat down you know within recent months and made a list of creators whose works I want to either own completely or at least read through completely. And I don't think, other than Roger Stern, I don't think that there was any writers on that list. And now I realize that Matlo should have been on that list and he should have been high on that list because this is a writer whose work I would like to read complete. 
And I have read a lot of it, and I definitely own a lot of it, but I was intrigued by you know how much more stuff he has worked on, like Man from Atlantis, for example, that I, I didn't know and really would be interested in. Um, another one here on my list um, is Sectars, which I've seen in the 50 cent bins all my life, you know, and, and it was one of those ones you'd, you'd kind of, you know, if you were sitting with a buddy at a comic shop going through the cheap bins, you'd pull out and go, hey, here you need this one, jokingly, not realizing, hey, that's Bill Mantlow. It's probably pretty good. So next time I see that, I'm going to pull it out. And again, I think he did the whole run on that, too. So, yeah, I mean, the, the guy was all over the place. And, uh, you know, there's definitely other things out there of his I'd, I'd like to check out. Um, he did a series called Sword of Swords of the Swashbucklers. I never even heard of this one, so I have no idea about that. Um, he did, of course, the the Rocket Raccoon limited series. I think I bought that off the stands, the first issue, but I never, I don't, I don't think I ever went beyond it because that was one of the earliest things with. Uh, with Mike Mignola, and I've I've just never warmed to that guy's art. But now I'm kind of sad I, I didn't pick up the rest. I can only imagine what that price is for now. Um, and he also did um, the limited series Rawhide Kid. Um, that I read with the exception of I. There was one issue I was lacking, and I'm pretty sure it was the final issue of the series. Um, which I now own, but I've never read. But I did buy that and read it as it was coming out. And I've never really known... Oh, no, I know why. Because uh, Byrne did... I think Byrne did the covers on the first one, two, three issues, something like that. So I bought it because of Byrne. Um, but I actually did read it, despite not really knowing the character or having any interest in it. And it was really good. It was a, It was a story of an aged, rawhide kid... Um, at kind of the tail end of the old west as you know the modern modern day was kind of encroaching on the old west and his way of life was kind of ending and he was at kind of the end of his career end of his life type of thing and it was a really good western uh, i i really enjoyed it although again i don't know how it ended because i i never read the final issue that that's when i've got to go back and look at it at some point too so by the uh, mid-1980s, uh, he was enrolled in law school. Um, though he continued writing for Marvel, his workload began to decrease due to disputes with management. Um, now, apparently, and I, I've read this for myself, Shooter, Shooter didn't I, – I don't know if it was so much he didn't like Bill Mantlow, but he didn't think much of Mantlow's writing. And much as I – love Jim Shooter, and I really do. I, I have the utmost respect for Jim Shooter. But I got to say, you know, his frequent and repeated uh, what, what I see as bashing of Bill Mantlow's work over the years has always bothered me. Um, I think, in, in my own personal opinion, I think he's at least as good, maybe even a better writer than Shooter ever was. And I think Shooter was a hell of a writer, too. So I've always wondered what it was between them. Was it personal? Was it professional? What what was it that Jim Shooter failed to see in uh, in Bill Mantlow? And again, I, I've read this for myself on you know things that, that uh, Shooter has written about his opinion of Bill Mantlow, and I, I'll never understand it. 
No, I totally agree with you. And, and I've met Jim Shooter, and I totally enjoyed the experience of having an opportunity to speak to him. I found him to be engaging. Uh, but you know what? I, I I do get the impression that personalities came into play with uh, with with Jim Shooter, and that there's some people who had problems with him for his management style. You know whether or not Mantlo did, and maybe he did. Maybe that's why his career at Marvel started to wind down, uh, and maybe that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And maybe personalities became more of an issue than the actual uh, quality of his work. Uh, and you know, people are human. That's all I'm going to say. And you know. Uh, people make make uh, pe- pe- people you know make opinions on other people, and I can't necessarily judge them for it. It's it's not my place, so I'll uh, I'll just leave it at that. Right. But now, I but this, I mean quality of work. I I certainly think he's he's up there with with the greats. That's all. Uh, you know, no question in my abs- mind. Absolutely. I I just I've always found it ironic because. You know, the way I've read the situation, and again, this is just my impression, I could be dead wrong, but the way I always read the the situation was that Shooter didn't think a lot of him, so he kept giving him what he thought were shit assignments. And then Mantlo would turn around and create something wonderful out of it. And that's cool. I, I think that's really, I mean, it's, it sucks that that's what Shooter was trying to do, if that is what he was trying to do. But it, I think it speaks volumes of Bill Mantlo that he was able to, you know, make lemonade out of lemons, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. look, you know, the, the, the work that he did with something that other people would just, you know, totally fail at, I, I think that's pretty incredible. So, Yeah, and, and anyway, I think, I think uh, that might be borne out by, uh, you know, just the, the projects he had to work on. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's uh, hey, this one's a loser. Give it to give it to Mantlo. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, um, I, unless I unless maybe yeah. unless maybe Shooter's opinion was not as low as he pretends it is, and you know, like I said, maybe personalities came into the play. But maybe he knew, okay, I can give this to Mantlo, and I'm going to get something good. I don't know. Yeah, I'd I'd rather believe that. You know, I'd I'd rather believe that was the situation. But you know, I I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know. But and just just an interesting point, uh, and and I'm gonna give you kind of both perspectives on this as somebody who's who's had somewhat of a similar path in some ways when when Mantlo got his uh his law degree and was licensed to practice law he became a public defender uh now on the one hand uh I could tell you that that's an easier job to get at a law school uh because it's not necessarily the most desirable one uh so you know it it is something you can kind of line up and get uh you know, as long as you're competent, but right. but I'm inclined to think more that Mantlo was a a humanitarian and thought, let me help the people who can't afford to get help otherwise. Uh, you know, right. he, he he was not a young. I just graduated college and then I went to law school and now I'm a lawyer. You know, he he was older at that point. He was probably, I guess, in his late thirties. Uh, which you know, for just getting out of law school, that's that's older. Uh, I, I would think with his background, he could have gone into you know law where he would have you know been working on uh, you know property rights and that kind of thing, you know, character uh, copyright laws and things like that. Because I would think you know he would have 
kind of a foot to get into the door on that stuff, you know, working with the studios or, or whatever. Uh, but I'm going to say from what, you know, from what little I know of his actual personality that he, he chose to go into that field because he felt like he was serving people, uh, for, for, you know, better or for worse. I think I, I'm going to take that as his motivation. Right. So, and then, uh, unfortunately we have the tragic, End of well, his. Just, just before that, um, I, and I'm curious if you ever read this, um, because of the the problems he was having at at Marvel and everything, and you know, finding his his work reduced and that sort of thing. You know, working for Marvel, he actually did uh, a project for DC right towards the end of his writing career. Um, that was actually a pretty big one. He did. Uh, now he was working off. Um, plots by um, uh, Keith Giffen, but he was the writer on DC's Invasion, the three-issue main books of that whole event. Did, did you ever read that? Uh, I believe we covered it on the sh- on the show. That's I think you had Michael on for that, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I unfortunately I was not part of that, but I I, I no now that you say that that rings a bell. Um. I, I hold that in very high regard. Now, I haven't reread it in a long time, but I'm sure that holds up. I remember really enjoying that because, um, I, you know, there's not a lot of events that DC did after Crisis on Infinite Earths that I thought were very good, but that one I think is, is right up there, um, you know, almost crisis level because I, I thought it was very tightly put together and I, I just thought it was engaging. I thought it was a really good um, concept and a really good story and everything. And uh, yeah, that's one I, I'm I'm due for a reread on that one as well. I remember really digging that at the time it came out. So yeah, that that unfortunately brings us to kind of the the sad conclusion of, of the tale here. So you know, as you said, you know, he he was working more as a as a public defender in the Bronx um, there at the end. On July 17th, 1992, um, he was actually hit by a car um, while he was out rollerblading. Uh, It was a hit and run. They never got the person that that did it. And he suffered severe head trauma. And according to, now this is from Wikipedia, it says here, according to his biography, and that biographer rather, and that really caught my attention does that mean that there is a bill mantlow biography out there somewhere because if there is i'd really like to read it um, but anyway according to his biographer uh cartoonist david yorkovich um he said that uh, for a while bill was comatose although no longer in a coma the brain damage he suffered in the accident is irreparable uh, his activities of daily living are severely curtailed, and he resides in a health care facility where he receives full-time care. Um, now, his brother, uh, Michael Mantlow's uh, brother, uh, described Bill Mantlow's injury as, he says, Bill is and has been trapped in a world of confusion and despair since his accident. The cognitive uh, deficits he suffered have left him unable to reason or understand his situation, and he struggles daily to maintain any control over his own mind. For someone with his intellect and imagination, this was the absolute worst type of injury that could have ever happened to him. And uh, it just breaks, absolutely breaks my heart. It so breaks my heart. Um, I mean, 
I mean, just, you know, an amazing creator that, you know, created amazing things and, and created a lot of happiness for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's really, really sad. And I mentioned in the I, past, I, I, uh, when I, when I lost my brother years ago, uh, and when I did, I felt a sort of a kinship and, and a, uh, uh, just a connection to the to the to the love this man had for his brother, uh, that he that he became his caretaker even when he was a shell of himself, uh, and that he you know he he's done so much for his brother, uh, and I reached out to Michael Mantlo on Facebook at the time, and he responded to me and we had a little you know back and forth on it and uh, I can't tell you just how much I respect the man for what he's done, for for his brother. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. He's 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 been. You know, just an incredible pillar, you know, of support for his brother all these years. I mean, this was 1992. So what is that? It's just shy of 30 years ago. You know, for 30 years, he's he's had to, you know, he's had to shoulder this this burden. And uh, I mean, what an incredible man. And he, you know, he still he does, you know, to this day, still takes care of his brother. And I think that's wonderful. It's just, it's so sad. You know, I I just, I keep hoping for, you know, praying for a miracle in this situation. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, we could get some of Bill Mantlow back again, but I I don't know that that's ever going to happen. I, uh, I do notice here on, uh, on Mike's amazing world that, uh, Marvel continued to publish, stories uh by mantlow after his accident and i cannot help but wonder because of the nature of his work um being that fill-in guy especially early in his career where marv wolfman was just stockpiling stories is there somewhere out there you know a drawer with more mantlow stories in it that we've never seen because there was one published as late as october of 93 a, a thor story uh, by Mantlo, so I, I I can't help but wonder, you know, is there more stuff out there that we just don't know, you know, that's never, for whatever reason, never seen the light of day, and I kind of like to hope so, I, I, I you know, I, that there is, but then, uh, you know, that also it would be discovered and published one day, that would be nice, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just so sad, I hate ending the show on such a down note, but there's really not anything... Well, yeah, I, did, I think than, the uh, up note we can we can leave on is just that he left an incredible body of work that is absolutely worth diving into, and I can only recommend that you do that because his, his writing is was just it was great. That's it's that simple. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I cannot cannot recommend um, Rom and the Micronauts high enough. I mean, just it's amazing. You know, to think that everything with those, with both of those sets of characters and both of those universes came out of his mind. It's, it's amazing. Cause it's, I mean, honestly, it's no exaggeration. That is like Star Wars level shit, man. I mean, it's really, really good stuff. It's incredibly imaginative. It's, it's very original. Um, I, I think at the time, I think that there was kind of a perception of the Micronauts as being kind of a, you know, a Star Wars ripoff at a time when there was a million Star Wars, you know, that movies and, and different things, you know, comic books that, that were kind of, uh, you know, given the green light because of the success of Star Wars and, and kind of borrowed from Star Wars. So I think there was that perception was out there. I, I know I had it to, to a certain degree, but I, that is really giving that series a, a short shrift, 
um, you know, to describe it that way because it is its own thing and it was incredible, incredibly imaginative. And, uh, I mean, you know, Marvel continues to mine stuff from both Micronauts and ROM to this very day, despite the fact that, you know, they don't own those characters. They own the concepts and they continue to mine those concepts. So, you know, that really speaks very highly, I think, to the, the man's imagination. All right. I am going to end this on a very down note. Because I just looked and, and I and I, uh, I just saw that Michael Mantlo passed away in April of 2020. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. That is oh, that is so sad. Well, so, I do know that you I'm know sorry there, there is the bright spot. <laughs> there is the bright spot though that uh, you know there's a wonderful story out there and you'd, you'd have to you'd have to hunt it up you know uh, do a do a Google search or whatever to to get all the details. But I do know that. Um, when Guardians, the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out, that Marvel provided a special screening for Bill Mantlo uh, because he created Rocket. And my understanding was that despite the cognitive um, you know, problems that, that Bill Mantlo is now faced with, that he really enjoyed it, that he, he kind of understood what was you know what was being given to, you know what was being presented to him and everything and and I don't know I read this somewhere but there was a thing from his brother Michael saying essentially that you know it, it meant the world to him you know to both him Michael but also to to Bill you know that that somehow he felt he he got it he understood the the gesture and he understood the the love of the fans and that sort of thing and that that's pretty wonderful uh, that that was you know heartwarming to to hear. Yes, I do remember that as well, and that's a good note to end it on. So uh, <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed this show, and I hope everybody will actually seek out some of Bill's work and, you know, let let his his genius live on through that. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Scott, for doing this with me, and uh, we'll see I you I had next a blast, time. man. Thank you. Me too. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>